a 20-foot wall of floodwaters rushed through a river and, and swept away people in their campers as they were at the river's edge. And even most recently, we know in the state of Kentucky, I think it was over 30 people lost their lives in flash flooding, which is so dangerous. A young girl taken from her village in Thailand and brought to the large city of Bangkok, where she was trafficked out to foreign visitors. A baby found dead in her crib, a Sid's death. Teenage boy, real popular in his school, killed by a drunk driver. A husband leaves his wife of 30 years. She was faithful to him. A tornado rips through a town, killing 10 people on one particular street. One side of the street devastated. The other side of the street, all the houses perfectly intact. The problem of evil, major philosophical problem that you probably have thought about and wondered, why did God allow so much suffering? An explanation for that is something called theodicy, where Evil, how do you reconcile evil and a good and loving and all-powerful God? But if you're touched by the tragedy, it becomes much more than just a philosophical exercise. It becomes emotional. You say, God, why did you allow this to happen to me? I'm doing my best, and you blindsided me. Well, maybe, perhaps, suffering has never made you angry at God or disappointed in God. I would say, good, I'm glad. I celebrate your strong faith. But perhaps the sermon this morning then isn't for you. It's more for those who have or are right now struggling with unanswered prayer, struggling with the silence of God. C.S. Lewis says, meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you are tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption, if you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face. And a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once. And that seeming was as strong as this. What can this mean? Why is he so present and a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in time of trouble? So C.S. Lewis right there, that, that's not how he usually expresses himself, but he did with the death of his wife. The psalmists often express this lament. One example is in Psalm 44. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourselves. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? Nine-year-old Leo Tolstoy jumped out of a third-story window to see if God would answer his prayer to fly. He soon had his first disappointment with God. 
And listen to this true lawsuit. Sorry, Donald Drusky, but God is tort proof. Drusky, a 63-year-old resident of East McKeesport, Pennsylvania, tried to sue his maker for failing to bring him justice in a 30-year battle against his former employer, the former steel maker known as USX. The suit was tossed out in federal court in Syracuse, New York. This is years ago. Said the lawsuit, defendant God is a sovereign ruler of the universe. It took no corrective action, which ruined the life of Donald S. Drusky. The company had fired him. Drusky wanted God to return his youth and grant him world class guitar playing skills, along with resurrecting his mother and his pet pigeon. And here's the clever part. If God failed to appear in court, Drusky argued, federal rules of civil procedure say that he must lose by default. But U.S. District Judge Norman Mordew found the suit, which also named former presidents Ronald Reagan and George Bush, the U.S. Congress, the television networks, all 50 states, all federal judges, and every single American as defendants to be frivolous. So whether your disappointment with God is frivolous, like Tolstoy's leap or that lawsuit, or profound, like in the death of your child to cancer, there have been many explanations offered for the problem of evil over the years. Here are a few. We deny God's existence. That's the argument of the atheist. And unfortunately, some Jewish believers in God, as they went through the horrors of Nazi concentration camp, came to the realization there can't be a God who would allow this. Second, God can't intervene. In Christian theism, we argue that God is all powerful and all compassionate and loving and has the power to intervene. But Rabbi Harold Krishner, in his famous book, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People, argued that God isn't all powerful. He's weak and limited, so he doesn't intervene. Third explanation is reincarnation. Hindus say that you come back in a higher form if you've been good, but if you've been bad, you will suffer more. You receive bad karma for your bad life. Fourth explanation is you get what you deserve. Determinism, in other words. And you know what? Even in Bible days, people thought that. We have an example in John 9, 2 to 3. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? Somebody had to have sinned. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Another explanation is to deny evil exists. Many Eastern religions deny the existence of evil. Cults like Christian science. And some of the more extreme charismatics can come close to this, the health and wealth variety. If only you had more faith, you would be well and rich. The fact that you're not shows that you don't have faith. The sixth explanation is it's a mystery. 
Now, while human beings cause most of the evil in the world, there are natural disasters. And so we won't always know why. Now, perhaps, and I think it should be, that these explanations are not satisfactory. Christianity has a better explanation than those. So what I'm about to say, I think, is the most important thing I'm going to say this morning. So please listen carefully. Your suffering isn't meaningless. I believe that with all my heart, that God sees your pain. He cares. He has a purpose for you in it. You may never know all the whys and therefores now, but you can trust him. You can trust him because he suffered, too. In sending his own son, becoming one of us and dying on the cross. But we're going to look at the problem of evil from the perspective of Job. Really want to do a summary of the whole book of Job this morning and and tackle that problem, that issue. When I hear the word Job, I immediately equate it with suffering. But let's read a little bit about Job this morning. Chapter one, verses one through five gives us a little bit of his life. There was a man in the land of Uz, an unknown place, whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. So that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one of his of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus, Job did continually. These first two chapters of the book of Job are extremely fascinating. Job was the greatest man of his day. He was rich. He had a big family. He was very devout. It mentions an example of his adult children feasting together and perhaps they forgot God that day. And he interceded and prayed for them every day. The book of Job tells us that he was upright, blameless, righteous. And if you want to see a list of good deeds, read Job 29. Job wasn't sinless, of course, but the author wants us to know that Job isn't suffering because of some hidden secret sins. Now, let's continue on in the story in verse six. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. 
Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. It's as if a door is opened up in heaven and we are privy to what goes on there. Or another way to think of it is a play. You're at a play and the curtain opens and the playwright comes out onto the stage before the play begins. And he takes us audience into his confidence and tells us in hushed tones what the play is going to be about. It's going to be about the suffering of our hero who we're let in on the secret, but the hero is not. We also get a glimpse here of the divine counsel, the heavenly beings, the sons of God who are around God's throne. And then it tells us of another one who comes called the Satan. It's in Hebrew, ha Satan. And it's not a proper noun. It's not a name. It's a title of function. It means the accuser, the adversary. This being has an adversarial role. He comes and accuses and prosecutes. That's his role or job, the prosecuting attorney. He, he's looking all over for someone to bring a charge against. Now, we know him in the New Testament as Satan. And I believe it's the same being here. As there, but just wanted you to know the difference in the Hebrew. God heads him off at the pass. Did you see my favorite Job? There's no one like him. And Satan says, well, no wonder what a deal he has. Who wouldn't serve you? You've made him rich. Just take it all away and see if he serves you. It's as if Satan proposes a wager. He bets God that Job only serves for the benefits. And so God agrees to the wager. He wants to see if Job loves him for him. Would a human being still love me, God, if they lost everything? Now, let's read on. Verse 13. Now, there was a day when the sons, when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young people. And they are dead. <coughs> and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrongdoing. So we, it's like four arrows shot to the four winds, four disasters strike Job one after the other. He loses everything, his servants, his livestock, 
and all ten of his children and also later his health. And disasters are like that. One moment you're typing on your computer in your high rise office building and the next moment an airplane flies into your building. Do you notice God's rea- or Job's reaction in verses 20 to 22? I hope you caught that. I slowed down and emphasized the word grief and worship. Do you or I worship as a first reaction to tragedy and problems and trials in our lives? Job reached out to God. He didn't blame God. He didn't turn away from God. He realized that suffering is a part of life. Life isn't only about happy times, but also hard times as well. Ecclesiastes 3, 4, there is a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Writer Philip Yancey says, don't expect life to be fair because God is. Don't confuse God and physical realities or you are in for a crushing disappointment. The curtain drops for now. The Satan is foiled. The curtain rises for act two. Let's read that in Job two. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with him to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. Satan presents himself again. He now charges Job with callousness. Job's willing to allow for the suffering and death of all his animals, all his servants, even his own children, to save his own skin. Take away people's stuff and most will fold. Take away their their health and they all will. And then Job was afflicted with a horrible skin disease. Some think it's a form of leprosy where your skin turns black. Others say it was the ailment that the elephant man had in that movie. Modern medical opinion is not unanimous in its diagnosis of Job's disease. But according to the prognosis in Job's day, it was apparently hopeless. The horrible symptoms included inflamed eruptions accompanied by intense itching, maggots in ulcers, Erosion of the bones, blackening and falling off of skin, 
and terrifying nightmares, though some of these may possibly be attributed to the prolonged exposure that followed the onset of the disease. Job's whole body, it seems, was rapidly smitten with the loathsome, painful symptoms. Job resorted to scratching himself with broken glass to relieve the itch. I believe he was removed from his house because he would have been considered unclean and possibly contagious. So he probably was relegated to sit at the city dump among the trash, rotting animal carcasses, homeless beggars and village idiots. And then his wife came up to him and said, curse God and die, which seems like a very harsh thing to say. But remember that she was suffering, too. She had lost all 10 of her children as well. She may have been advocating Job to commit suicide, considering his great suffering that he would not suffer anymore. Job was once a prince of his city, the leading elder of his town. That means he sat at the city gate. People brought disputes to him and he decided them. He was esteemed by everyone. Now he was a virtual leper, an outcast, ostracized and despised by all. Verse 10, the second part of that verse says, but in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. He did not sin against God. He did not blame God or turn away from God. The Satan disappears from this point and never reappears in the book of Job, while Job continued to stay true to God. The next act are the friends of Job come on the scene. Verses 11 to 13. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came, each from his own place. Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Job's famous comforters come to him. And to their credit, they sat with him for seven days in silence. They didn't say a word. They were just there supporting him. They did that really well. But then they opened their mouths And for the next 36 chapters, have a conversation with Job. They did two things really badly in those chapters. Number one, defend God. God doesn't need defended. Certainly not by fallen human beings. Second thing that they did badly was to try and convince Job that he was a horrible sinner and that God was punishing him. Be careful how you try to help someone who's grieving and going through a really hard time. You don't know the full circumstances. You can misunderstand their pain and judge them in ways that are very painful. Being with them, standing with them and supporting them, that's a good thing to do. And also to encourage them to go to grief share. Job defends himself. He complains that while he isn't perfect, he wasn't so bad as to deserve all this. So he takes his complaint to God. 
Abraham Heschel says, there are some forms of suffering that a man must accept with love and bear in silence. There are other agonies to which he must say no. Job thinks, if only I can get an audience with God, God will vindicate me. God will tell my so-called friends that I did not deserve all this agony and this misery. Look, God doesn't mind us arguing with him. But take it up with him. That shows a relationship. This shows that Job did have a relationship with God. And finally, God answers Job. 38, 1 to 3. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. God then proceeds to ask Job 77 questions. It's the longest monologue of God anywhere in the Bible. And here's the bottom line. Job, if you can't fathom how to run the simple physical universe, how do you hope to understand the much more complex moral universe? You see, we want a God we can figure out. If we can figure God out, that makes us equals. Now, God's answers to Job aren't terribly clear. Nothing is really explained to him. God answers his questions with questions of his own. He says nothing about the wager, nothing about God's confidence in Job. No justification, no acquittal, no public vindication, nothing at all to stir love for God in Job. Virginia Woolf says, I've read the book of Job. And I don't think God comes out too well in it. Yet at the end of the book, chapter 42, the last chapter, Job repents. Why? I believe it was because God came. God showed he cared enough to speak to Job and also to show him that suffering is a deep mystery. Job no longer feels he needs acquitted. He's seen God and that's enough. His ordeal established his righteousness and gives us a deeper insight into God's nature. He certainly learned a lot about himself. Satan's goal was to prove he was an awful sinner. God's goal was to prove the sincerity of his faith and love for God. The point is, it's not what we think about God when we suffer. The point is, what does God think about us? God was putting his reputation on the line with Satan. If one of God's very best would fail, what would the rest of us stand a chance? God had to be silent. He couldn't let Job in on the wager or Satan would retort that he didn't really love God. You explained everything to him. Now, what if God would think to do the same thing with Job with you? He's given you his word. He's given you his Holy Spirit. You have everything you need. Now he's watching. Maybe the universe is at stake in the outcome. Will you deny God and give Satan the victory or stand true to God when all your circumstances scream that you should reject God? The book of Job isn't about innocent suffering. That's what you always hear. It's about it's not that at all, because no one is innocent. It's about faith. 
That's what God longs for in us. Not the faith to believe God for a miracle, but the faith to believe God when the miracle doesn't come. That's fidelity, loyalty, integrity, faithfulness. The book of Job is about fidelity, faithfulness to God. In our personal suffering, we only see our pain. That's where our focus is. It's like we can't see anything else. We can't see God who is at work behind the scenes, cheering you on, believing in you, strengthening you, comforting you, longing to see your faithfulness to him. We only see the tangled mess of the underside of the weaving. We don't see the beautiful design and picture on the other side. That's what God sees. Well, at least God answered Job. I only get silence. If only he'd speak to me or if only he'd do a miracle in my life, then I'd believe. Yeah, like the Jews of the Exodus. They had a steady diet of miracles, as we saw recently. Ten plagues, Red Sea parting for them, manna and water in a desert, pillar of cloud and flame by fire to lead you each step of the way. You want guidance? There's guidance. They heard God's literal voice. They saw the Ten Commandments written by the very hand of God. And did that cause them to love God more? Did all those miracles improve their fidelity to God? No. It seemed to work the very opposite. They murmured constantly. They worshipped a golden calf. It seems like they wanted the miracles more than God. But God wants faith from us. And that seems to require suffering. Sometimes really hard suffering. Especially from his favorites. And the book of Job ends. We see his fortunes turn when he forgives his friends and prays for them. Hebrews 2.8 says, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now. In putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. No, we don't. We see a lot of pain and suffering and evil in the world and even in our own worlds. And we long to be free from it. And someday we certainly will. Because Jesus was our innocent sufferer. Christianity is the only religion where God becomes man, becomes a human being and suffers for us, for our sins on the cross, that we might have a relationship with God. One writer says the innocent sufferer who was entirely human stood before the relentlessness of fate and the injustice of nature, not as an impotent Peace of humanity thrown to the winds, but as humanity's great high priest. Jesus, too, is both an innocent who is visited by undeserved suffering and in the end, the voice that has the last word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this tremendous book of Job that has so much to teach us about you. You are good and wise and do all things well. 
You have everything under control. You have a plan. We can trust you. Thank you for Jesus who suffered alongside us as a human being and yet conquered sin, death, hell, and the grave, rose triumphantly from the grave so that we might be brought into a large and open place with you and know you better. I pray that for everyone this morning that they might know Jesus and our Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's stand.